Today our scripture is going to be from Genesis 6, 14-17. Make yourself an ark of gover wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to cubit for above. And set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Good evening. Good to see you tonight. We're glad that you're here. We are always thankful. Uh, we have been discussing uh, some tips to understand the Bible, and so we're continuing with that thought, and we come to what I'm going to refer to as the most important word in Bible study, and that is the word context. And we'll talk about that and what it means as to our understanding of Scripture this evening. The Bible is a closed system, and what I mean by that is there is no new revelation coming. You and I have in our possession the sum total of God's Word. There are no updates. There are no improvements. There is no additional information. There are no lost books. This is it, these 66 books. Jude says, the faith has been once for all, the American Standard Version, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which has, was once delivered unto the saints. This is all we have. This is God's Word. The reason that's important is every word within there is spoken within a context. You open up your Bible and you start reading, and chances are good you're reading a conversation in motion. Somebody's talking. Generally, they're talking to somebody else, and they're talking about something in, in particular or specifically. And you and I are coming to that and trying to understand that every message is written or spoken within a context. And so then understanding the context shapes and determines the words and their meaning. It's important, and maybe we're, I'm getting ahead of myself because it's not in my notes, but it's important to define words. That's very important. But the definition alone of a word doesn't give us the meaning. The context does. And so words can be used sometimes depending on context. The same word can be used to mean different things. For instance, I could say, uh, I have a brother named Greg, and I could say of him, Greg, I hear you're the big dog in Virginia. That's where he lives. And I suppose that if I said that to him, he wouldn't be offended. If I said, Greg, you're the big dog, and you heard that because you have an understanding of what big dog means by way of context. But I could take the same word dog, and I could say, Greg, you're a low-down dirty. Suddenly, the word dog has a different meaning because the context is different. Now, I would never refer to my brother that way. I'm just trying to give you an understanding that we could define the word dog. It didn't change. Whatever a dog is, it is. But the context gives us the meaning. That's what makes this so important. If words are taken out of their context, they lead to misunderstanding. Misunderstanding leads to misapplication. 
And very often it is the case that in people's lives they're trying to live for God, apply His teaching, but they have misunderstood what He said. To illustrate the importance of context, we start here in Genesis chapter 6. We just heard read for us, very well I might add, verses 14 to 17, where God says to someone, build an ark. In fact, He's not asking, He's commanding. So I would ask you, why haven't you built yours? Why haven't you built an ark? There is a verse in the Bible that commands it. A faithful servant of God is commanded to build an ark. In fact, it is a matter of salvation. Genesis 6, 14 to 17, he will be saved if he builds this ark. Hebrews 11, 7 says he was because he built the ark, and yet you haven't built one. Now, why haven't you built one? Well, the answer is rather obvious, isn't it? God commanded that to Noah, and therefore it wasn't given to me. I have no obligation to build an ark because I understand the context in which the command was given. That's what makes context so important. I might also add along those, lane, those same lines, it's why we don't try to live under the law of Moses. Look over at Deuteronomy chapter 5. There are people who are trying to live by the law of Moses. They say, well, it's in God's Word. It's the covenant that He made with His people, and certainly that's true at one time. But if you're trying to obey the law of Moses, you're missing the context. Just as you have not built an ark for the same reason, you shouldn't try to live by the law of Moses. The ark was given a command by, to Noah. The law was given to Moses and Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, if you're not in this context, then you can't live by the law. These verses say this, then Moses summoned all Israel. Well, clearly you're not included. He summoned all Israel and said to them, now what did he say? He said, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinance which I am speaking to you today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God, verse number 3, made a covenant with us at Horeb. You'll want to note the word us. Who did he make the covenant with? He made it with us. Well, who is the us? All Israel. He made it with us, but Moses doesn't stop there. No, in verse number three, he says, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers. Well, who would be their fathers? If you're Moses in Israel, your fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses says he didn't make this covenant with them which means they didn't live by the law of Moses. Why not? Wasn't made with them. In fact, he goes on to say, and just notice how frequently he uses the word us. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all of those of us who are here alive today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. Why can't we live by the law of Moses? Contextually, covenant wasn't made with us. In fact, the covenant has come to an end, and there is a new covenant. Notice Hebrews chapter 7. The Hebrew writer says that there has been a new covenant made, that the covenant made with Moses and Israel has been changed. 
He gives the reason why a new covenant has been made. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 12 beginning, and you could read again contextually 7, 8, 9, and 10 to get the breadth of this discussion. But he says there in verse number 12, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there must also be a change of the law. Well, the priesthood has changed. Well, who is the priest now? If we were to go back to chapter 4, we would read that Christ is our high priest. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with our feelings and the infirmities that we share. Why not? Because Christ came and became one of us. He's our high priest. Well, the priesthood has been changed. And as a result of that, the Hebrew writer says it's a necessity that the law be changed. He goes on and continues by explaining, for the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. I suppose at a later date we'll talk about silence and, and all those sorts of things, and we could get into that here. We just won't. The point simply is contextually. You and I cannot observe the law of Moses because the law wasn't made with us. We could no more observe the law of Moses than we could build an ark in order to be saved. God has given a new way to be saved, and God has given a new law and a new priesthood. Understanding context affects everything. It determines whether or not we understand the Bible properly. And if we remove the words of God from their context, we'll misunderstand what the Bible teaches, and this happens far too often. Context determines our understanding of every doctrine that we teach and preach. Doctrines like miracles, have they ceased? Well, we'd have to study that, but the context would bear out whether or not they have. The gift of the Holy Spirit, what is it? The context would bear out what that is. The kind of music we're to offer God in worship, the context would bear that out. When we can or we can all read the same words of the Bible, but it's the context that determine their meanings. Is it the case that because David said in Psalm 50, praise God with instruments, that that means we should praise God with instruments? It's clearly in the Bible. David clearly said it. It is certainly inspired. But does that mean we're supposed to do it? Well, no, because of the same reason we just spoke. The Psalms are part of the Old Covenant. See Luke 24 and verse 44. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Covenant, and he did. The context would answer that question. If I want to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? I'll have to do that in its context. All things biblical can only be understood correctly in their context. What's the meat of our discussion tonight? Two things. What is context? There are two kinds of context, this discussion that we're having. The first kind of context is the immediate context context. The immediate context involves or includes the verses immediately surrounding any particular passage that you are reading. And along those lines, let me just say this. If you want to understand the Bible, this is one of the best tips I can give you. If you want to understand the Bible, just keep reading. From wherever you are, just keep reading. Very likely, whatever question you have will be answered by reading the immediate context. 
most often the passages before or behind the one in question will give you the answer because the speaker will likely explain why he said it or what he meant or who he's quoting or what he's trying to, what point he's trying to get across. And so you're reading along in the Bible, you come to a verse and you say, wow, what does that mean? Keep reading. Go back right before and right after. For instance, look at John chapter 3 and verse number 16. If you wanted to understand this passage in its context, the best course of action then would be to read the verses immediately surrounding it. We often hear it quoted, and you've probably heard me say from time to time, we're jumping into this chapter. This is the reason, context is why I say that. If we're in a book of 10 chapters or 13 chapters or 21 chapters, that book has a point to make. But if we jump to chapter 3, then we've missed 1 and 2. And if we're in a chapter, chapter 3 has 21 verses, if we jump to verse 16 and quote it, Unless you know the first 15 verses, then verse 16 is going to have its meaning connected to the first 15 verses and the verses that subsequently follow it. And typically, we don't do that. We just quote the passage, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's exactly what the verse says. What does it say around it? Well, go back just a verse or two. In verse number 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. What's he talking about? Well, immediately he's talking about Jesus. And according to verse 13, 14, he's talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's talking about Jesus being lifted up as Moses did the serpent. Coincidentally, another quick point, let me just throw it in there. The Bible will constantly refer to Old Testament passages. It's one of the reasons we have to study the Old Testament. We have to understand the Old Testament because the Bible will do something like this in verse 14. There is an explanation of the context. As Moses lifted up the servant, what in the world does that mean? If I don't know what that means, it'll be challenging for me to understand the point the Lord is trying to make when he references that. And clearly he does. Something connected to him is like Moses lifting up the serpent. Well, I'll not take the time to go back there, but I think it's Numbers 21. If you'd like to go back and read about the serpent, the brazen serpent in the wilderness, and I said I wasn't going to take the time to tell you, and look what I'm doing. I'm telling you. But you'd have to know these things. I, I'm, I'm trying to encourage you to appreciate the fact that the Bible is this harmonious unit. And the authors, the speakers, will not often give us lengthy explanations. They'll just reference the event. And then they'll make a point from the reference they made. As Moses lifted up the servant, so must the Son of Man be. He that believes will have eternal life. God so loved the world. And you would just keep reading. This is the immediate context. The second kind of context is the remote context. First of all, the remote context may include other passages that have bearing on the same subject. So that's one. John, for instance, will use the word believe throughout his book, but he'll use it a lot. 
And so I might better understand John 3, 16 and 15 with regards to belief by other times John uses that in the book. That would begin to be the, the, the more remote context. To understand love in one passage, it may be helpful to use other passages on love within the same book by the same author. Then there are other books. The writers won't contradict each other, and so they shed light on what other writers have said. Peter will say something, and Paul will say something, but if they're talking about the same subject, they may shed light on what each other said. It'll be harmonious. It'll be unified. But I might read Peter talking about one thing, and I might read Paul talking about the same thing, and I put them together, I might have a better understanding of what, that, what they mean by that subject. You could do the same with all of the writers, Peter and Jude. If you read, if you go home tonight and do this, if you read 2 Peter 2 and you read the book of Jude, you will find a lot of similar information. You will gain a better understanding of what they mean by the way each one of them talks about the present circumstances. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, taking the gospel accounts and taking the events spoken of in multiple accounts will give you a better understanding. One of the very good things, or one of the very good examples of that is the conversion of Saul. It's recorded in Acts 9, it's recorded in Acts 22, it's recorded in Acts 26. The first time it's recorded by Luke, the second two times Paul's actually recounting the events. And as he recounts, he shares a little bit of more detail, a little bit more detail. And when you put them all together, you can see the light shining. You can hear the voice in Hebrew. You can see why the men with him saw the light, didn't hear the voice. But it takes all three of those accounts to be put together to give you a good understanding of what happened. Sometimes they even talk about each other. Go over to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll come back to John 3 in just a moment. But go over to 2 Peter chapter 3 and listen to how Peter talks about his writing and the writings of others. Peter says in verse number 1, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder or remembrance. Verse number 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy apostles and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter says you should remember what they said. You should remember what the Lord said. You should be reminded, take all of the writings, put them together in your mind, harmonize them, remember them. Later in this chapter, he talks about Paul. Notice what he says down in verse number 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just also as our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him, wrote unto you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood. Does Paul write some hard things? 
Peter says, yes, but listen, he's not saying what Paul wrote to you can't be understood. It's only hard for the people that he then talks about. For whom is it hard? Listen to what Peter says. They're hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort or rest or twist or pervert. If you're going to do that to the Scriptures, it's going to be hard to understand them. If you're going to distort them, it's going to be hard to understand them. If you're going to twist them, it's going to be hard to understand them properly, contextually. And Peter says, Paul has written some things. In fact, he refers to Paul as our beloved brother Paul, the Spirit of God writing or inspiring him, inspiring me, take the writings, put them together, come to some understanding. This is the remote context. Thirdly, with regards to the remote context, the whole Bible is in play. If you're talking about a subject in the Bible, maybe you're talking about a verse, again, for, for simplicity's sake, that talks about miracles. Certainly, you could read the immediate context, and you should, and see what the authors are saying. And then you should fan out just a little bit and consider what other authors have said on the subject. But the truth is, to come to an understanding contextually of what the Bible means by that, you have to include the whole Bible. If the Bible talks about the subject, you'll want to know what it says on that subject. It doesn't matter where it is in the Bible. Again, as you're unfolding God's plan, there'll be times when miracles will be introduced to humanity, and they'll be explained. And that explanation will likely be true all the way through the Bible. It's not like God's going to change why he gave them. And maybe, again, a very clear instance of this is go back to Exodus chapter 4. Sometimes I'll ask you questions that I won't know the answers to, just to I mean, it's not a test for you. I'm just being honest. I don't know. This is one of those times. I don't know that there are a whole lot of miracles in the book of Genesis that's performed by men. I don't know a lot of those. And if you read through the 50 chapters of Genesis, uh, off the top of my head, you go through the first five with Adam, and, and then from about 6 to 11 with Noah, you won't find any miracles done by men at that point. You then would move 12 to 25 to Abraham, and I don't know again that Abraham actually performs any miracles. You would probably go through Isaac and then Jacob, and eventually you get to Joseph, and the first time that you and I might come to something with regards to miracles would be the dreams and Joseph's ability to interpret them, which God gives him. And that may be our first reference to the concept of miracles. But it won't be until you get to Exodus chapter 4 that the Bible will take up the subject of miracles and explain why they're given in the first place. And Moses is given that explanation by God here in the first 8 to 10 verses of chapter 4. Now again, contextually, if we're in chapter 4, that means we miss 1, 2, and 3, and that means we would have to understand that what led us to 4 was the bush burning and not consumed, and the subsequent conversations that God and Moses had, and eventually God convincing Moses to go back to Egypt. But at this point, Moses still is not totally convinced, and so after he says to God, who am I, and then effectively he says, who are you, 
then God answers both of those things, and we get to chapter 4 and verse 1, and Moses has a, a new idea or a new statement. Notice what he says. Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to me? What if they say, they say the Lord has not appeared unto you? Now, just for a moment, put yourself in Moses' shoes and ask and answer that question. Moses is the one who was 40 years old when he left Egypt. Moses is now 80, and so he's been gone for 40 years. Moses is the one who went out to the desert, the wilderness, and saw the bush burning and not consumed. Moses is the one who heard the voice of God speaking from the bush. Moses was the one who told, was told, I am that I am. Moses was. And now with that in mind, Moses says, okay, I'll go back, but when I do, what if they say, he didn't talk to you? What am I to do? I suppose we could just tell Moses, say, yes, he did. But as you could imagine, that wouldn't be very effective. So notice what God does. Verse number two, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff, a rod. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. These miracles, verse number four, but stretched, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Verse number five explains the purpose of this. The Bible says that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and God of Jacob has appeared unto thee. He will give him two more miracles, and at least one more time he'll say that statement. This is so they will believe that I appeared. You and I then are introduced to the concept of miracles and their purpose in Genesis, in Exodus chapter 4. That won't change. Now, you can walk your way all the way through the Bible, but that's why they're here. That's their purpose. And so we're told that now, if you want to understand miracles more broadly, go through every verse in the Bible where you find miracles. That's the idea of the remote context. It includes all the passages immediately before, behind, but it extends further. Even in the book of John, if we were again talking about John 3.16, if we wanted to talk about the remote passage or the remote context of that passage, we wouldn't just read the passage immediately before and behind. We'd go back to, at the very least, we start at verse 1. And since people often quote John 3.16, they misunderstand, they miss the context. Notice what was discussed before verse 16. The Bible says in verse number one, now there was a man by the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. No man can do these signs, miracles. No one can do these things unless God is with him. Then Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says it again in verse number five, after Nicodemus asking a man be born by entering a second time into his mother's womb, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, one is born of the water and of the Spirit cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Before we get to verse 16, the subject of being born again has already been introduced. This is the more broad context, but if we were going to understand that verse, we wouldn't actually start just with verse 1 of chapter 3. We'd go back to verse 1 of chapter 1. We'd read down to those first 14 verses, and we'd be introduced to our God, 
we'd be introduced to the Word made flesh. We'd begin to talk about His purpose. We'd begin to talk about His ability. We'd talk about John, the forerunner, the one who baptizes Him and sees the Holy Spirit descending upon Him. We'd begin to talk about all of these things, and what this would do is begin to shape for us the context, not just of a verse, but of the book. Because sometimes the authors within a book will tell us why the book is written, and John does. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says, Truly many, truly did Jesus many other things in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life through his name. That's the whole scope and scale and purpose of the book, to move one to the conviction that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Now, that conviction will move you then to obey him. The reason that's important is because when John quotes or writes or pens or says John 3.16, he's not doing with that what we do with that. Somebody comes along and they quote John 3.16 today, they see the word believe and they completely remove it from the context, both of Scripture as a whole and this book. John is not saying what we say, all you have to do is believe. That's not what he's saying at all. John is saying quite the opposite, in fact, that if you are moved to belief that Jesus is the divine Son of God, then you are moved to submission to do whatever he tells you. It is the belief in Jesus that moves you to obey Jesus, but there is an obedience to be had. In fact, he says you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. We said take the other writers and put them alongside. And so does Mark talk about salvation? He does. The end of Mark's book, Mark says, go into all the world, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then he says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Well, who's right? The way people approach the Bible, they would have John and Mark disagreeing with each other. They would have John saying, all you have to do is believe. John never said that. But if you take the verses out of their context, that's what you would have John saying. On the other hand, Mark clearly says, you have to be baptized. In fact, he puts belief and baptism together, ties them together with the conjunction and. You do this and that. That's the way Mark says it. Now, are they contradictory? Not at all. John and Mark are in agreement. And if understood contextually, they are in harmony with each other. If we were to add Peter's statement in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 to what John says, to what Mark says, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is how we began to understand what is involved in one's being saved. This writer says, believe. This writer says, repent and be baptized. Another says, confession. This one says, baptism. And so you take the sum total of God's word. That's what the truth is. But you don't go and grab one passage and then array it against another passage as if the speakers are in disagreement with each other. The Bible does not contradict. There is no more important word in Bible study than context. Let me just ask, 
Have your words ever been taken out of context? Has somebody ever quoted you, and then when you heard it, you say, that's not what I said? Have somebody ever walked up to your conversation in progress, and they missed some, and then what they heard, they began to act on, and then you said, that's not at all what we're talking about. Has this ever happened? Because that's what people do to the Bible. They come to the Bible, and individuals are talking, and they're saying things, and they miss half of it. They don't know the background. They don't have a concept of what's been said or what is said or even what they're talking about. They just bring their understanding or lack thereof, and they place it over the Bible, and they misunderstand. We've had three lessons along these lines so far. Let me give you the outline if you're taking notes. We began with five things to know. God is, and so draw a conclusion and commit to it. He is or he isn't. God spoke. God spoke in words. God spoke in known language. God spoke in propositional language. God, or we talked about five important keys to remember. The Bible is a book. It has to be read. I know we can also say it has to be heard. The point is, the information has to move from the pages or the tablet or the, the phone into your heart, into your mind. It's got to get in there. The Bible has a theme. We talked about that. It actually has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's closed. It's, that's it. There's no more coming. And there is a theme of thought that runs through the whole thing. The Bible is intended to be understood. The Bible must be read with the intent of understanding it. And the Bible is to be taken literally unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation. And the most important word in Bible study is the word context. There are two kinds of context. There's the immediate and there is the remote. A good question then would be, how do I know and understand what the context is? And that'll be next week, Lord's will. Not a Christian tonight become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is. He doesn't become the Son of God because you, he, you believe it. You need to believe it because it's true. He is the divine Son of God, and one day he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Repent. The Bible says it is a change of mind. That's what the word means. We change what we're thinking. We change how we're living. It reforms our lives ultimately. Jesus said if we don't repent, we'll perish. Confess the name of Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, Matthew 10, 32, 33, if we don't confess him, he won't confess us. And be immersed in water, baptized for the remission of your sins, and God through Jesus will save you from your sins. And friends, if you've never done that, you need to. If you are his child, please understand, you can understand the Bible. In fact, you must read it for yourself. Take the tools, take the time, read the Bible. You can do it. And if you have questions, see your elders, see your preachers, see your Sunday school teachers, see your deacons, see some mature Christians, get some help. But don't let it sit and simply tell yourself, I can't do it, because that's just not true. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.